All right. You guys ready for the word? Well, God has a word for you today. It's going to be powerful. Uh, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. And also you might want to put a finger in Genesis 12 because we're going to go back to Genesis for a little bit. But uh, 1 Samuel 17 and Genesis 12, we are in our study of King David's life called In the Footsteps of King David. And the series is called this because we're learning from David's example. God actually has spoken to us and said, hold David up as an example to my people. Because what the Lord wants us to do is he wants us to look at David and see a man who is after his heart. He wants us to see a man that fulfilled his own calling. David had a calling and uh, God had a purpose and a plan for David and David fulfilled it. And so we've been asking this question and we're going to answer it. It's just going to take us a number of weeks as we go through the life of David. We get to look at how David responded to situations like trials or sin how David responded to success, how David walked out his calling and fulfilled his calling, and really, more than anything else, what made David a man after his own heart. And so we want to be disciples of Jesus, right? We are called as a church to be followers of Christ. And we're learning to know Jesus intimately. We're learning to become like Jesus completely. And we're learning to partner with Jesus in his mission. And so David is an awesome example of that. So what, what made David a man after God's own heart? You know, I love those books. Some of you are familiar with like, uh, I think Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You ever, you know, you ever read books like that? Some of you are into that, some of you aren't. Or uh, those, are, those are good books. But we love that as Americans, don't we? You know, the, the, three, the three successful principles for CEOs. Or, you know, like the, the seven steps to a great marriage. We love all that kind of stuff, don't we, right? I don't know why we as Americans love that. And in fact, I like that kind of stuff. And, but honestly... What God wants us to do is look at David. It's not, if you think about it, it's not one thing that made him a man after God's own heart, is it? It's not just one thing. It's not just one thing he did or one way he was that made him a man after God's own heart or caused him to succeed in his calling. No, it's going to be more than that. It's going to be seven things of David or whatever, I don't know. And I don't know how many. I don't know if it really matters. The point is that that's what we're doing. It's like we're looking at David, looking at what made him different and why was he a man of God's own heart? And what did he do? What did he do? And so uh, as we look at that, we're, gonna be, we're just going to kind of go through his life and see those things. Uh, Luke uh, King last week brought out a powerful principle of how vulnerable and honest uh, and open David was with his emotions to God. So it's a powerful uh, message. You should listen to that if you weren't here. And, um, and then today I want to talk to you about something so core to David. I don't really want to talk to you about necessarily what he did, but how he thought. Something about David was extremely different from everyone else in his generation because he thought differently. He saw things differently. And we can see in the word of God why he thought differently and how, what he saw differently. He just looked at life, he looked at himself, he looked at God through a different lens than really anyone else. And we can see this reflected in 1 Samuel 17. It's a story of David and Goliath. This has got to be, what, top 10 on the highlight reel, you know, the heaven's highlight reel, or, you know, the top 10 stories in the Bible. I mean, almost everyone loves the story of David and Goliath, and people talk about it a lot because there's some powerful principles here. It's really the first time we meet David. I mean, I know a couple of weeks ago we saw his calling in 1 Samuel 16, where he was a young man, maybe 10 or 12 years old, and he was called and anointed by the Lord to be king. But really, this is the first time we see David shine, don't we? This is the transitionary event in his life. When he takes out Goliath, it's what causes him to move into promotion and become a captain in the army of Israel. 
It's also what brings him more fully into the court of King Saul. Uh, he, he knew King Saul, but he, he wasn't really known by King Saul. This really puts him in a place of popularity and position and favor and fame, and yet it also is the transitional event that brought him into Saul's jealousy and led to his trials. And so this event in the life of David is super important. Uh, it's a transitionary event, but more than that for us, we get to see something about his heart. I think that's the thing. The Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything, does it? We don't get every story about David. We get the highlight reels. We get the highlight reel because it's those specific events, especially transition events in our life. Really, it's, it's success and transitions and trials and hardships that make or break people. And we see David come up, come up against something and succeed, and we see something about who he is. So we want to look at this. Uh, before we do, man, we gotta, I, I almost forgot, we've got to celebrate. Uh, do you guys, know, you guys know Isaac and Sri? Oh, there's Isaac in the back. They found water in Africa. They've been digging a well. Yeah. Praise God. I, uh, let me be more specific. They, Isaac has had a vision to build a well in a particular village for years, probably more than a decade, right, Isaac? Four years. Okay. Oh, I thought it was even when you were younger. So but for four years, they've been raising money and they've been praying and they, they were able to get the money. Many of you have prayed. Some of you have even given. And they actually, uh, so they, they dug, they started the drilling like last week or something like that and they found water. Praise God. Yeah. So good stuff. And uh, let's keep going. And then those of you who don't know, Lisa and Akili are engaged. So I had to, sorry, I got to, you know, <laughs> got to embarrass you guys a little bit. Anyways, you guys can say uh, congratulations to them later if you know them. If you don't know them, get to know them. There it is, right there. We're a family. So, uh, all right, 1 Samuel 17, highlight real. So this story obviously is a story of David and Goliath. And what's going on is David is a youth. Many times in the text it keeps saying David is a youth, which means he's not even 20 yet. He's not, even, he's not a man of, uh, of military age. He's not a man of marriage age. He's just a teenager. Uh, and so in their minds, he's, you know, he's, just, you know, he's out there ha- hanging out with his dad's sheep, being faithful to that. And what happens is the Philistines come against Israel, uh, and, and they basically, the Philistines are on one side of a valley, and the Israelites are on another side of the valley. And this champion, this like major military uh, uh, champion of the Philistines named Goliath, who's probably eight, nine feet tall, uh, a very experienced and obviously very large man comes up bef- uh, and, and presents himself before the Israelite army. And he literally says in, um, in verse 10, pick it up in verse 10, it says, And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. It says this, And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And so this man, this Goliath, is obviously their best warrior, and he's trying to, uh, the idea is that two men would fight as representatives of the entire community. This is very common in the ancient world, that one person represents everyone. They saw themselves as a collective whole, as a community. And so two men would fight as a representation of the rest now, I don't know if it would normally end there. Does it make sense? Even if one guy wins, they'd probably still fight. But that's the idea, you know? And uh, so he stands up and he says to the army of Israel, I defy you, 
right? He's basically mocking them. He's challenging them and intimidating them, right? It's, it's you know, I mean, it's like in our day, it's like if somebody's like, yo, what's up? You want to take yourself outside? You know, it's that kind of thing, right? This guy is trying to provoke them and intimidate them. He is in their face, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. And notice what the reaction from the army of Israel is. When Saul and all Israel heard, heard, right? When they heard these words. See, what happened is the words of Goliath went into their ears and what they saw in front of them, like a big dude who is obviously really good at fighting, what they saw with their eyes and what they heard with their ears, it came in and it went into their heart and this is what it produced, right? They were looking at things and they were listening to the things through a certain lens, And it caused them, because of what was in their heart, it says, and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You ever had that where like all your motivation or courage or hope just drains out of you? Like you can feel it. Right? Just like there's like a little hole in you or something that just drains right out of you. This is how they felt. This man stands up and says, I defy you. And they are so freaked out. It says they are greatly afraid and dismayed. They lost all hope. They lost all courage. And so Pastor Saul and the Israelite church, they're freaked out. And they basically just went passive. They hid. Saul just hanging out in his tent, not really leading forward. In fact, in this context, many of the, Phil- uh, many of the Israelites compromised and went over to the Philistine camp just kind of like well we'll just go over there before it gets worse you know that kind of a thing and and you have these israelites freaked out passive hiding why why did they freak out like that why didn't why didn't somebody rise up and say i'll take that guy out why why were they so afraid i think it's because as they were factoring in the equation you know, you know, let's see, Goliath plus me equals dead, right? As they're factoring in the equation, the, the all, all they saw in this equation is we're on our own. And see, this problem, this Goliath, this defiance against me or against us is bigger than me. I know for most of my life, for most of my life, um, I mean, I'm saying as a Christian, since I was 16, I knew I was called by the Lord, but I always felt it was up to me. It's up to me. I always felt on my own, you know, as I would factor in the equation. And so a lot of times, the way I would look at my calling, especially my calling, things that God had asked me to do, or even things that, um, finances, find myself making sarcastic jokes about finances because really what was in my heart is I'm on my own here. I got to figure this out. I got to prove myself. I got to earn something from God. I got I got to make it happen. See, even successful people sooner or later are going to run up against something that's bigger than them. Oh, you know, oh, I'm good at my finances. But yeah, what happens when there's an economic crisis? Yeah, yeah, I'm good at I'm good at relationships until you're not, right? I mean, you're, ah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. You know, I was raised in the church until you find yourself struggling with some sin that you just don't know how to get out of. And now it's bigger than you. 
And it's scarier than you. And, and, and what we do is we factor in, it's just me. I'm on my own here. And that's what these guys were doing. They were processing what's going on. And they're processing Goliath's words and his big arms and thinking, I'm on my, I don't, that's bigger than me. That's scarier than me. And I know, like I said, for most of my life, that's how I processed a lot of things. And so I would often feel insecure or I would get discouraged. And it was kind of like, well, maybe God will come through. Well, I guess. I hope he does. Well, if the Lord does this or if the Lord does that. And this is the way I would think. This is the way I would talk or joke even if I ran up against some financial thing. But one man was different, wasn't he? One man. Wasn't even a man. One youth, the Bible says. Teenager. Was different. See, David was sent by his father in this story. He was sent by his father to bring some food to his brothers. So David goes to the battle and he uh, takes the food there. And of course, you know, he wants to kind of know what's going on. So he, kinda, he leaves the food with the keeper of the supplies, and he goes to the front lines. You know, he wants to check this out. He's got, he's pretty, uh, he's a man. He knows what's up. You know what I'm saying? He's a dude. He's like, man, I want to see this. And he goes there not knowing what's happening. And this is what happens in verse, um, it says in verse 23. Then as he talked with them, well, referring to David talking with some of his brothers and people around there, he's kind of like trying to find out the, the gossip, the good, hey, what's going on, right? And it says, as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine Goliath of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. Meaning that for 40 days, this is like the 40th day, Goliath would stand up and say the same thing, I defy you, come on, give me a man. Is there any man around you? Come on, take me out, right? He's mocking them, he's challenging them, he's intimidating them. David hears the same words, it says that, right? The same words that Saul heard, the same word the church heard, I mean Israel. But David, listen to what what David does. So David heard them. So David heard them. Verse 24, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So it repeats again that these guys, they saw what David saw, they heard what David heard, and they're freaked out and they've lost courage. Verse 25, so the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter uh, and his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. That's a pretty good deal, right? Money, no taxes, praise God, and a wife. Sounds good to a teenage boy, (laughs) to a young man. Verse 26, then David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, wait a minute, what What shall be done for the man who kills him? Right? Now why is he asking that? Why is he asking that? He's like, hey, wait a minute. What's going to happen? Why is that? Listen to why. We can hear it right here. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Right? David views this as a shame that's on Israel that no one's rising up and no one's taking this guy out. What's going to happen for this man? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? You've got you to gotta understand, David, when he heard this, when he saw the guy, he wasn't like, oh my goodness, who's going to fight that guy? He wasn't thinking that like every single other person. You've got to understand, this guy's one in a million. 
this guy's different. And he's either crazy or he knows something we don't know. In fact, I think that's what Saul thought. Later, Saul's like, oh, okay, you, you go. You go, man. Go for it. Like, I think Saul thought, well, the guy's either crazy going to get killed or he's got something. And the reality is, is that David, when he heard the, the army, the, the Philistine defy Israel, he thought to himself, what? Who's this? Who's this uncircumcised Philistine? Who's this guy think he is? Defying the armies of God. See, everyone, he didn't say, the Philistine giant didn't say, I defy your God. He didn't say, I defy the armies of the living God. He said, I defy Israel. But what did David hear? What? You're dissing my God. You're defying, do, do you know who you're talking to? These are the, this is the army of the living God here. This isn't just every other nation. This isn't a nation like every other nation. This isn't a military like every other military. We are not people like every other people. We're the people of God. We're the armies of the living God. And this dude, he's an uncircumcised Philistine. Do you see how David, right here, David's like, what? So when he hears there's going to be a reward, David's like, oh, I want to know. Why? Is he asking for someone else? Is he thinking, well, I wonder what someone else is going to get? No, he's thinking about what he's going to get, right? Because he's already thought in his mind, I'm taking this dude out. Taking that guy out. So when he, he's thinking, he hears it and he's thinking, who is this guy? I could take that guy out. And he hears, yeah, whoever does that's going to get a reward. He's like, really? That's a good one. Why? Is David different? Do do you see? He does not think like any other person in the church. I mean in Israel. He, He does not think like anyone else. He is the minority. And it looks crazy. It looks like radical faith. It looks like presumption if you don't know what David knows. He knew something. He understood something. He believed something that these guys didn't get and most of the church today doesn't get. And here's what it is. He understood that he has a covenant with God. When he's factoring the equation, it's not Goliath plus me equals death. It's Goliath plus me plus my God equals, I'm going to whoop on that guy. David understood something and he believed it. That's the difference. He believed. He had a covenant with God. That God was his God. So I want to show you this here. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 12 and and stay in 1 Samuel 17. We'll come back to that. But I want to show you something here. I I need you to understand and I I believe, not I need to, but I, I I believe the Lord wants you to understand the covenant that God had made This is David's history. This is David's heritage. This is David's covenant. But as we walk through this, this is not just David's covenant. This is your covenant. And you've got to see something that David saw. So in in, um, in Genesis chapter 12. Sorry, let me get there. Genesis chapter 12. God makes a covenant with a man named Abram. Abraham, Abram, later his name is changed to Abraham. Abram is the father 
of the Israelites, right? He's the forefather. And so as you guys probably know, God says to Abram in verse 1, chapter 12, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, or maybe defies you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God says to Abram, if you'll follow me, I'm going to show you a land, and I'm going to give you that land. And I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. Now, Abram did not know what it was. He did not know all the details of this blessing or this relationship he was going to have with God, but he believed him and he obeyed him. So Abraham, or Abram, gets up and travels until God brings him to the land of Canaan. And in chapter 12, verse 7, land of Canaan, which is now currently the nation of Israel. He says, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, everyone say descendants, to your descendants, I will give you this land. So Abram just followed in faith until God said right here, this is the land I'm going to give to your descendants. And so the promise that God was making to Abram and this covenant that he was bringing Abram into was not just to him, but to his descendants. And it it encompassed Things like this land is going to be yours and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to protect you and provide for you. All that kind of thing. See, to come into covenant with another person in the ancient world, it literally meant to become one. To come into covenant meant to come into oneness where we share resources, where we got each other's back. And what's going on here is God in this context is the king and he's inviting Abram into a covenant as his servant. And he's, but it's not like, yo boy, I'm your king, do what I say, right? It's not like dictatorship. It's he's saying, if you'll follow, I'm going to bless you if you follow me. I'm going to make you great. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of king we serve. And so you'll notice, if you'll skip over to Genesis 15, and if you can't, just try to follow up with me on the screen, but Genesis 15, verse 1, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, Your exceeding great reward. What is he saying? Shield. He's referring to being his king, his protector, his military leader. Shield. It's a metaphor of a king protecting. I'm your very great reward. What is he saying? I got your back. I'm going to take care of you financially. He said, I'm going to take care of you. Right? So God says this to Abram. Guess what Abram says? Verse 2. Lord, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, and the the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram goes, man, you're telling me you're going to bless me. You're telling me my descendants are going to get this land. But where where are my descendants? I got no kids. And so God takes Abram in Genesis 15 outside, shows him the stars, and says, see, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. And the Bible says that Abram believed God, and it it credited him as righteousness. Nothing changed. It wasn't like, here, here's a baby. No, he just told him. No, no, your descendants can be like the stars. And without having anything to base that on, Abram just took God at his word. He goes, oh, okay, I guess that settles it, right? And then, (laughs) all right, right, that's faith. But he then says, but God, how can I know? In response to God's promise of descendants and land, he says, how can I know? See, even people of faith, we say, God, but how can I be sure? How can I know and be confident in this? Because, you know, I'm waiting here. And God... um, and God says to Abram this, in verse 10, oh no, in verse 9, this is all that God says, bring me a three-year-old heifer, 
and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham said, oh, okay, that'll, that settles it. Would you know what to do if God said to do that? That's all he said, verse 10. That's all he said. God, how can I know? How can I know that you're going to do this and keep your promise? Well, go ahead and get me a, uh, uh, you know, go ahead and pull up. Go ahead and get me a heifer, you know, cow, and uh, get, me, get me a goat and a ram. Oh, okay. Like anyone, anyone else a little bit lost there? Anyone else? Like, oh, uh, uh, God, I have a question. How does that settle? How does that settle? That? How's a ram? What is it? What is this ram thing? You know what I'm saying? What is this heifer thing? That, that's not helping me, right? Anyone else? But look at what Abraham did in verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 10. Verse 9, he says, bring me those things. Verse 10. Then he, Abram, brought all these things to him, God, and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. Did God tell him to do that? No. He just knew. Why did he know? Because God, Abraham knew, Abram knew that God was bringing him into a covenant. See, in those days... When people were to come into a covenant, there was other types of covenant, but when people were going to come into a blood covenant, which was the most binding covenant, they would cut animals right down the middle. It's kind of disgusting. Have some of the pieces of the animal over here and some of the pieces over here, and the two parties of the covenant would walk right down the middle. And scholars tell us that sometimes they would accompany this with oaths, but generally speaking, the symbol spoke for itself. We have a lot of symbols in our culture that we just know what they are, don't we? We just know what they are. They, Abraham knew exactly what was going on. He says, Abram, just bring me the animals. Abram goes, oh, God's making a covenant with me. So Abram cuts the animals down the middle because he already knows. God is using a cultural metaphor that would speak to Abram and help Abram to understand that God is serious about this. And so he cuts the things down the middle and he waits And it says here, if you look in verse 17, And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch, which is symbol of God's uh, presence, because he's a consuming fire. And that passed between the pieces. And verse 18 says, On the same day, the Lord made a covenant. Literally, the word means to cut a covenant. To cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, everyone say descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the, and he goes on and he describes the land. Who walked through the animals? Only God. God makes a unilateral, one-sided, unconditional promise to Abraham. To Abram. He's the only one who walks through the animals and this is what it's symbolically saying. Scholars say it's what's called a maledictory oath. That's a big word, I know. I just want to sound smart. If I don't keep my promise, let me be like these animals. That's what he's saying. Called the walk of blood. They are sealing the covenant in blood. And if I break this covenant, God says, let me be like these animals. Why would that be so encouraging to Abram? Because he knows Whoa, God would have to kill himself to lie. Bible says multiple times, God cannot lie. He would literally have to deny himself, the Bible says. He'd have to kill himself. Now that's not possible. So therefore, Abraham 
He sees God walk through those animals. He knew. Right then, he knew. Wow, God's going to keep this. God's going to keep this promise. In fact, Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that God did this so that the heirs of promise, that would be us, would know that it's impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6. That God did this so that Abram, but more than Abram, us, we would know. God is serious. Ultimately, God fulfilled this in Christ by shedding his son's blood so that we could come to Jesus. But notice he says, to your descendants. Then in Genesis chapter 17, this is really important here, God comes to him again. This is great. Abraham gets a lot of times, he gets to hang out with God. In verse, chapter, verse 2, chapter 17, he says, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly, right? So he's continuing saying, I'm making my covenant with you. He's confirming it to Abram, and I'm going to multiply you, meaning I'm going to give you lots of descendants. Listen, verse 3, then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. So he changes his name, which is something people did when they came into covenant, by the way. And he says, for I have made you a father of many nations. This is the key that I want want you to see in verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you. Everyone say descendants. In their generations, meaning that as they are born, I will confirm my covenant to them as well. But listen how he says it. And your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Meaning I'm never going to break it. To be God to you and your descendants. Everyone say descendants. After you. You guys seeing a theme here? I hope you do. Verse 8. Also I give to you and your descendants after you. Everyone say descendants. The land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Who's God? You guys are catching on. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and the covenant was always about his descendants. How does this work? Because like I said, one representative can bring everyone else into covenant. If I'm your dad, and you're my family, I make a covenant, you're all automatically in covenant, because that's how they viewed headship. Not only that is, it's for generations, as we can see here in this text. Covenant is like an inheritance. See, we understand inheritance, right? You have money, you have land, you have property, whatever. You die, you give an inheritance to your children in a, in a form of a will. Or even, it's a covenant, by the way. A will is a form of a covenant. And, uh, co- but covenant promises, these promises that God made about land and blessing and provision to be their God, it's like an inheritance. Meaning, when Isaac, when Jacob, when the descendants of Abram are born and they rise up, that covenant God made to Abram is passed to the next generation like an inheritance would be passed. It is very tangible in their mind. In fact, even forms uh, 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 other types of inheritances were blessings, word blessings, that would, they would view the, the verbal blessing as having substance to it. 
We usually think of just land and money. No, no, no. They understood, I'm actually inheriting this. This is why in the Bible, Old and New Testament, you'll see the words covenant, promise, and inheritance often interrelated. Often. Because it's not just to one man, it's to his descendants. So look, if you'll look in Genesis 26, you'll see, you see here, I'll just jump over there. You'll see God coming to Isaac. Isaac found himself in a little bit of a pickle. Isaac is the son of Abraham. He's the, what of Abraham? Yeah, you guys are smart today. I like that. Good job. Good job. He finds himself in a little pickle, a famine or recession, an economic crisis with no jobs. No, in his day, it was, there was no food growing from the ground and no rain coming from the sky, which is not good if you're a farmer. And he's kind of freaked out a little bit. And God says to him in verse 2, Then the Lord appeared to him, referring to Isaac, and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. I will be with you. Isaac, you're not on your own. This isn't you plus the famine equals death. This is you plus me plus the famine equals, dude, you're going to succeed and prosper. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. Then he goes on and explains it. Listen, for to you and your descendants, I give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to your father, Abraham. Why is God doing this for Isaac? Because God made a promise to who? Abraham. It's for the sake of Abraham. God makes a covenant with him and his descendants get to benefit from that. So God shows up to Isaac in Isaac's generation and says, I'm going to be your God too. And I'm going to give you this land to your descendants. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bless you. Isaac goes, why? What did I do? You didn't do nothing. It's because of what your dad did. I will make, verse 4, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. Who did he say that to? Abraham. And I will give to your descendants all these lands. Who did he say that to? Abraham. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Who did he say that to? Abraham. What is he doing? He's repeating the promises. But listen in verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice. Because Abraham obeyed my voice. I could talk to you about Jacob, who was named Israel. God does the same thing for him. He meets him, tells him the same thing, repeats the promises. The people of Israel, they went down into the land of Egypt. God saved them from a famine, a later famine, through Joseph. Remember, Joseph was sent to Egypt first, and it was through Joseph. He saves the people of Israel from a famine, and the people of Israel stay in Egypt 430 years. But in that period of time, they became slaves. The people of Egypt began to oppress them. God appears to a man named Moses, Exodus chapter 3, and says, I have heard the cry of my people. In fact, the first thing he says to him, he often will say this to the people he appears to, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does he do that? Covenant. Covenant language. I am the God of your fathers. And he says to Moses, you're going to lead my people of Israel out of Egypt and bring them into the land that I promised them. This is why we call the land of Israel the promised land because it was promised by God. The promise is the content of the covenant. He came into a covenant relationship. Now, one of the things I forgot to show you in Genesis 17, because I was zipping through that kind of fast, 
is Genesis 17 is where God, right after he makes the promise, he says, and the sign of the covenant between you and me will be circumcision. See, God made the covenant promise before circumcision. It didn't save them, just like baptism, water baptism doesn't save us, but water baptism for us, it signifies our entry into our community and into our our relationship with Jesus. But they were to be circumcised. So every male was to be circumcised as a sign of being in covenant with God, as a sign of being a descendant of Abraham. So obviously we know, though, for those of you who know the Scriptures, you know God, through Moses, led his people out of Egypt, right? He whooped on the superpower of the nation. He brought them to their knees. The whole entire army of the, of the Egyptians was destroyed. God led Israel through the Red Sea with a wall of water on the right and the left on dry land, led them right through it, led them through the wilderness, fed them with manna for 40 years, and gave them water from a rock. Right? There was no Sam's Club, right? The Bible actually says, God one time in the Psalm says, I provided for you by myself. That's what he says. Why? Because we're in covenant. I am your God. He leads them through the wilderness into the promised land after 40 years, 40 years because they were knuckleheads, but um, he gets them in and does he not get them into the promised land? He gives to the descendants of Abraham the promised land. He fulfills his promise that he made to Abraham. Now the Israelites are in the promised land. And these Philistines are coming against the people of Israel. And this Philistine Goliath is standing before the people of Israel and saying, I defy you, Israel. I defy you. And everyone's freaked out because they don't know they have a covenant with God. But David. But David. See, David knew he had a covenant with God. David knew he understood this covenant. He understood his heritage. Listen to the way he would think. God made a promise to Abraham's descendants. Oh, I'm his descendants. God said he'd be the God of Abraham's descendants. God said, I'm going to be their God. And, Abraham, and David thought, I'm his descendant. See, again, in a collective community, when you think that way, this is the way they would think. I am Israel, and Israel is me. I am from my father Abraham, and he is, an ex- and I am an extension of my father Abraham. That's how they would understand themselves. See, in our culture, we're so disconnected from family and heritage, we don't understand this. Not only that is, most of us are Gentiles, we're not Jewish, we don't understand the covenant. But do you see, even in Saul's day, Pastor Saul and his church did not get it. They factored into this equation, we're on our own, I guess. Well, I sure hope. I mean, I guess we'll go after this guy. I hope God comes through for us. I mean, you know, God's a good God. I guess he'll probably do it. But if he doesn't, he's sovereign. He can just do whatever he wants. Why do people talk like that? Because they're factoring in something that they don't understand. Or they're not factoring in something. They're not factoring in covenant. Of course, God's sovereign. But when he makes a promise, he keeps it. Or he'll have to destroy himself. Because he cannot lie. 
And, Ab- and David thought to himself, I'm Israel and Israel is me. I'm a descendant of Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham and therefore he made a promise to me. God is my God. God is the God of Abraham. God is the God of Isaac. God is the God of Jacob. And God is the God of David. That's my God. And we're not like every other nation on our own with no God, with no covenant. We have a God. We have a God who is on our side. We have a God who's made a covenant with us. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He doesn't have a covenant with God. Do you see, do you see why he's getting personal like that? Uncircumcised, you know what I'm saying? That's a low blow, huh? Get it? You know, low blow. Come on, guys, come on. Stick with me. Uncircumcised Philistine. Why did he bring up circumcision? Because he doesn't have a covenant with God. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He's not part of the people of God. And why does he say he's defied the armies of the living God? Because this isn't just any nation. These are the people of God. Listen to Deuteronomy 31 to help you to understand how David would think. Deuteronomy 31. Moses is talking to the people of Israel right before they go into the promised land. In verse 5. Verse 5. The Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you, nor forsake you. He's talking to the whole nation of Israel. He is your God. He is on your side. He has made promises to you, and He is with you. Listen to me, when you see those giants, when you see those obstacles that are bigger than you, don't factor in, I'm on my own, and let fear and dismay come into your heart. Do you see what Moses is saying? Don't be afraid of them. Why does he say that? Because he knows. He knows they're bigger. He knows they're stronger. He knows they got something we don't have in the natural. But he says, don't be afraid. Why? Because you guys are really good looking and smart. You guys are really strong. No. In fact, actually, you guys are looking kind of, you know, on the scrawny side, but because your God is with you. Your God is stronger. Your God is greater, and He has made a covenant with you to go before you, to fight for you, to be with you, to give you favor, and to do what He said He would do. He says to uh, Joshua, verse 7, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land the Lord has sworn to their fathers. See, covenant language. To give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. What did Saul and the Israelites do? Fear and dismay. Interesting, isn't it? Because they didn't know that God was with them. Because they didn't know, or at least understand and believe, the covenant that God had made with them. But David did. And I want you to understand that because David knew that he had a covenant with God, I'm going to show you this in 1 Samuel 17. Because David knew he had a covenant with God, God is my God. Because he knew that, I want you to understand something. Zero possibility 
that he would fail. Zero possibility that God would not do what he said he would do. There was in the mind of David zero possibility that God wouldn't come through for him. David understood and believed if a man or a woman will believe God and believe the covenant and just do what God said like Moses, like Joshua, like Caleb. David knew God is looking for a person who will take him at his word. David knew, I cannot fail. See, we kind of think that David is being presumptuous here, or we think that it's just radical or crazy. Or we think that, you know, David's freaked out like he's shaking in his boots. Now, I'm not saying he didn't have a little bit of nerves, you know, like his heart started pumping or something. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying because, you know, he's a human being. But I'm telling you, there was zero possibility in his mind that he could fail. That's the only reason why he talks the way he talks and the way he approaches these things. And he knew, this isn't me and Goliath. This is God. This is God doing this with me. So listen to what David says when Saul tells David, you can't do this. Verse 33, Saul says, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. This is how people talk who don't understand covenant. Well, you, you're, you're not able. You can't do that. You, do, you don't have the skill. You don't have the education. This is how people talk. In fact, his brothers thought David was prideful because people who don't understand covenant, they think people who understand covenant are prideful. But the difference is, people in covenant, they're not boasting in their own abilities. They're boasting in their God. David wasn't prideful. He's just really confident. So David tells Saul, verse 36, your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. You see that? Take that guy out. Just like I took out the lion and the bear. Verse 7, verse 37 I mean. Moreover, David said, the Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. You see that? Zero possibility of failure. He is so convinced that God will come through for him. Because he knows what God has promised in his word. I will be with you. I will fight for you. So then David approaches the Philistine. The Philistine starts mocking him. Calling him a dog. Come here little guy. Here let me throw some sticks at you. Starts mocking David. And the, and the, and the, and the Goliath says, I'm, I'm going to kill you boy. I love what David says. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, listen to this. You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. How does David see things? Sword? That's all you got? You're going to try to kill me with that thing? You don't know who you're messing with. See, David sees things differently. He looks at that and says, that's nothing. I got more. I got the name of the Lord. My God is on my side. Do you see this? This is not a crapshoot. This is not a lucky guess. This is not poker. He is guaranteed success. 
He is so convinced because he knows he has a covenant with God. And you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin? No. I come at you with the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. doesn't even have a sword. Come on, cut your head off. Use, use Goliath's own sword. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Catching the covenant language? We have a God, and He's going to show today that He is faithful. God's just waiting for somebody to take Him at His word. Verse 47, or, uh, yeah, 47, Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. For the battle is the Lord's. What did He say in Deuteronomy? I'm going to go before you. I'm going to fight for you. David understood Right now, I'm going to throw this stone at Goliath's head. God's going to knock him out. Now, come on, it wasn't the stone that killed Goliath. It was the power of God. Because David believed God. See, I want you to understand something as we wrap up today. You have a covenant with God. Where most of the church doesn't believe or even understand they have a covenant, not us. We can follow the example of David and countless people in the scriptures to stand on God's word and say, it's not only me. I'm not on my own. I have a God. And he's for me and he's with me. Listen to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. For you are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of, uh, of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you're in Christ, it says. And because you're in Christ, the Bible says you are sons of God. No, that's not a gender thing. It has to do with your position in Him. Listen to this, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Every one of us have this sonship with God. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And listen to verse 29. It's very important. And if you are Christ's, and you belong to Him, you're in Him. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. Whose descendants are you? Abraham. How did that happen? I'm not Jewish. Some of you are. I'm not Jewish. I'm not biologically associated to Abraham. It doesn't matter. That's not how covenant works. By the blood of Jesus, you came into Christ. Christ is a descendant of, of Abraham. You're a son of God. And you, now, you're a descendant of Abraham. The Bible says you get all the blessings and all the promises promised to Abraham. Right here. For if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, it's even better than back in the Old Testament because... By the blood of Jesus, we're completely justified, forgiven of every sin. Even better. In fact, listen to this. More than being a, a descendant of Abraham, I'm saying you, are, you have a new earthly lineage. Say, I don't really like my earthly heritage. That's all right, you got a new one. Or maybe you like yours. Well, now you have an added one. Okay, there you go. But you are a son 
a descendant of Abraham. And everything that God promised, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. See, he's not just the God of David, is he? He's your God. And it says right here in chapter 4, verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. An heir of God through Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, man, you got it made. You're, you're an heir of God. You're a son of God and an heir of God. That means you inherit all of the blessings and promises that were made to Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 8, you're an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, which means you get it because you're in Christ. And you're also an heir of Abraham. You receive the covenant as an inheritance and all the promises there for you. And so just like David could say, that's my God. And just like David could say, the battle belongs to the Lord. Just like David could say, I'm going to take you out. You can say the same thing. Because you're not on your own. You have a God. And I'll tell you, because of the truth that I've learned through our discipleship program, Operation Solid Lives, level 2 and 3, because of those truths and the effectiveness of that program, I'm convinced I'm not on my own. See, everything changed for me when I learned I had a covenant with God. I didn't know that. But Dave, you went to like Bible college. You're like a master's degree in theology. Yeah, somehow they missed that part. No, I, mostly I missed it. Because to be honest with you, most of my Christian walk, I've been like Saul. I saw myself. And you know, it's really prideful. It's me thinking that I've got to... It's like, honestly, God's been showing me. You, you thought... You thought you were more committed to your calling than I was. I, we do this a lot, honestly. We think, we think, oh, I'm just sacrificing to God. Even though he just hasn't come through, God, just help me be pure, love you. As if we want it more than he does. So prideful. We think we're more committed to God than he's committed to us. You're trying to convince God to help you. And you're so freaked out. You're looking at your finances. Think about, think about it. What defies you? What's staring you in the face right now and saying, I'm going to take you out? Your finances? Where is it that you have no hope? Just say, man, i got nothing to bring to this. Something with your business? Something in your relationships? You say, you know, you hear people talk like this about their marriage. Man, I don't, just, I don't see no other possibility. I don't see no way. Yeah, because it's all you got is you. People looking at finances or job situation or they're looking at uh, uh, health. Right? Sickness, just staring you in the face. I defy you. But you get a diagnosis from the doctor, I don't know what to do. People will say this with non-believe, uh, people who don't know Jesus yet. They'll say, I don't see any way they're ever going to come to Jesus. Yeah, because all you factor in is you or them. Because we don't know we have a covenant with God. And I'll tell you, it's, uh, and even in the last six months, uh, a couple years ago, when I began to understand this covenant with God, I told many of you this. I'm telling you, discouragement fell off of me. Really, it just fell off. I don't get discouraged. I get tempted. There's a huge difference. When you have victory over sin, you're on top of it instead of it being on top of you. You can see it and you can overcome it. I'm telling you, I walk in a freedom that I never had because God has revealed to me. He showed me. Dave, this is not a maybe. I made these promises to you. Do you really think, do you think this was your idea, Dave? I guess I did. This is my promise to you. This is my calling on your life. Oh, sorry, Lord. 
I'll tell you, in the last six months, I don't know what, I, all I can say is it's as if that lens that I was looking through was taken off and it's like I was given a new lens. The Bible calls it a different spirit, spirit of faith, that perspective that David had. Where I don't know what it is, I'm still new at this, but for the past six months, I see everything different. I remember when I first got saved, I saw the world through a lens of like, God loves me, I'm righteous. And all of a sudden, I mean, I, I was dead in my sins, by the way. When I was 16, I, mean, I was dead in my sin. And I remember, getting, I remember being born again. It's like the whole world came alive. Color, bam, I was like, oh, I was living in black and white. You know, the whole world came alive. I could, my spirit came alive. It was powerful, powerful, you know. I have to remind myself of that because we can forget that, those uh, things we've had with the Lord. But something's happened this last six months. I feel like something similar. I feel like I got like HD or something. You know, all of a sudden it's like I go to the next level or something. I look. It's like everything I look at now, I look at through a lens of covenant, I think. I could do that. Through my God who strengthens me. Through Christ who strengthens me. I don't know what it is. I'm convinced that he's with me. I'm convinced he's for me in a way I've never been before. And I'm telling you, this is a game changer, isn't it? This changes everything. Because you can look at that sickness and say, yeah, that's pretty bad. But my God. See what I'm saying? You can look at your marriage and say, yeah, yeah, that's pretty tough. But my God. You could be in a trial where you've been waiting for a long time for God to come through. But do you understand, when David was in the trials, being chased by King Saul, he was tough. was tough. He was very honest. In fact, I believe he was very honest with God, like Luke talked about last week, because he knew God was with him on his side. But I'm telling you, even in the hardest times, when David was being chased by Saul, zero possibility that God would not fulfill his promise. He was convinced. God said, I'll be king. I'm invincible until God does what he says. This changes everything. The confidence that God would give you, more than confidence, the victory that God would give you. That through every situation you look at, it's no longer bigger than you because you have a God. And you can look at it through a lens of faith and not be afraid. And see, what the Lord wants to do today is He wants to plug up those holes where you've just been, the faith or your courage or your hope has just been drained out. Blech. He wants to plug up those holes. And, 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 and just to change metaphors, I believe the Lord wants to give to you by His grace. He wants to take off those glasses that you've had and He wants to give you those glasses where you see or you hear through a lens of covenant, that with me and that for me reality. And so I declare to you today that the Lord is with you and he is for you, and the Lord is giving to you a new way of looking at things, a spirit of faith, a heart like David, and you, that you would know and understand the covenant you have with God and believe that he is with you and for you. And I declare over you, he will go before you and he will give you favor and he will fight your battles. I want you to understand, if you have a problem, he has a problem. If you have a responsibility, he has a responsibility. If you have an assignment, he has an assignment. And if you have something that's bigger than you, then God will take that out if you trust him. Luke, worship teams, lead us in response. Amen.